This is Monday Morning QB, February 14, 2022. I'm Askiya Muhammad. Today on the show, fury over the death of innocents resulting from no-knock warrants. Political prisoners. Elderly political prisoners. Elderly political prisoners with illnesses denied compassionate release. Is it time to increase taxes paid by the rich? And National Black Love Day got its start right here in D.C.'s Shaw neighborhood. All that, and we're asking for your financial support. Our goal for Monday Morning QB is $500 today, and you can help us get there. Call 1-800-222-9739, go online to wpfwfm.org, or cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Stay with us. The police killing of Amir Locke in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is bringing fresh fury to the controversial and too often deadly use of no-knock police warrants. Earlier this month, Locke was shot and killed by members of a Minneapolis SWAT team after officers using such a warrant barged into an apartment where he was staying and opened fire within nine seconds. Amir Locke's name didn't even appear on the warrant. In the wake of public outcry, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry announced a temporary ban on no-knock warrants in the city. But for many... That just doesn't go far enough. Sue Goodwin has more. Last Thursday, just over one week after Amir Locke was killed by Minneapolis police, his family held a press conference. Amir's father, Andre Locke, and mother, Karen Wells, spoke to the deep sorrow they are feeling over losing their beloved son, about the injustice over how the killing happened, and they demanded change. This is Karen Wells. I am demanding that President Biden and everybody else from the ground up to the top ban no-knock warrants across the United States of America in the name of Amir Ricard Locke. There is considerable support for the ban Amir Locke's family is calling for, and that includes the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. In a statement released shortly after the family's press conference last week, Janae Nelson, the organization's associate director counsel, expressed outrage at the senseless killing of Amir Locke, and, as the family of Amir Locke has done, she called for change. Quote, Mr. Locke should still be alive, and his tragic death underscores the urgent need to re-envision systems of public safety throughout our country and to ensure no-knock warrants are fully outlawed nationwide. Close quote. Puneet Chima manages the Justice and Public Safety Project at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and she explains exactly what a no-knock warrant allows police to do. So a no-knock warrant is essentially a type of entry when serving a search warrant or arrest warrant where officers don't have to knock and announce themselves. And this is a practice that grew out of the war on drugs. 
uh, when policing became more militarized and with a focus on drugs, uh, law enforcement agencies, federal and local, started using things like SWAT teams for drug investigations. And the practice of a surprise entry, which is what we call a no-knock, also began to be used more widely. There was another option the Minneapolis police could have used the night they killed Amir Locke, and that would have been what's called a knock-and-announce warrant. It requires officers knock, announce their presence, and wait a reasonable amount of time before entering. In fact, it's been reported that this is the kind of warrant initially requested by St. Paul police who were looking for a suspect in a murder that happened in their city. But Minneapolis police insisted they would not carry out the warrant unless it was no knock. Puneet Chima explains the inherent danger in that kind of choice. They're going into people's homes uh, where people may be sleeping. And if you don't announce who you are, and if you force entry into someone's home, a very natural and reasonable response of people who are inside is to protect themselves and to defend themselves, especially if they don't know who is entering. So these warrants are actually, they create the danger that law enforcement responds to by using fatal force on people who are inside the building. They're counterproductive. As was tragically the case on February 2nd, the night Amir Locke was killed. Locke was in possession of a gun that night, and in police body cam footage and in direct contradiction to what the Minneapolis Police Department has said, there is no indication that Locke pointed the gun at police, neither is there any indication that police asked Locke to drop the gun. Now, in its request for the no-knock warrant on the apartment where Amir Locke was sleeping, police stated it was necessary to protect the safety of the searchers or the public, given the violent history of the person who was actually named in the warrant. But as Puneet Chima makes clear, this argument rests on faulty reasoning, based on what we are learning from cities and states where no-knock warrants are not being used. And we have not heard of any change or additional threats of harm to officers as a result. And the justification that's used for no-knocks doesn't take into account the the risk that is created by the use of the no-knock itself. So that is the justification that's used, but we should also learn from all of the, the incidents that we're seeing and the data that exists about jurisdictions that don't use them. Um, and understand that that shows that officers can be kept safe without their use as well. But it's more than the risk for deadly outcomes that drives calls to ban no-knock warrants. Critics say they are disproportionately used against black and brown people. As Puneet Chima explains, there isn't a lot of data about the use of no-knock warrants nationwide, But in Louisville, Kentucky, where Breonna Taylor was killed as police executed a no-knock warrant, an analysis of such warrants reviewed by the Courier-Journal in 2020 found 82% of the listed suspects were black. And according to a 2014 report by the ACLU, over 50% of SWAT team searches were deployed at homes of black and brown people. And as Puneet Chima makes clear, what we do know is that race discrimination and anti-blackness is an issue in every aspect of the legal system. Black people are more likely to be stopped, searched, arrested, experience jury discrimination, be convicted and harshly sentenced. 
And one in about five of all people incarcerated are there for a drug offense. And while black and white people in the U.S. have been shown through studies to sell and use drugs at similar rates, black Americans are nearly three times as likely to be arrested for drug-related offenses. So nearly 80% of people in federal prison and 60% of people in state prison for drug offenses are black or Latino. So through the results of who is arrested and incarcerated for these offenses, we know the focus of law enforcement in their policing and criminalization of black and brown communities for drug use. So given what we know about the danger involved in using no-knock warrants and the potential for such warrants to be disproportionately targeted against black and brown people, why do police officers continue to use them? I think it has to do with the overall militarization of policing um, and the aggressive tactics that law enforcement are just used to using in so much of their everyday activity. And frankly, the complete lack of rules and accountability. They use them because they can. They're lawful. Courts have found them to be lawful since the mid-90s. The Supreme Court authorized the practice. And there are states and, and cities that have begun to put limits on these, but for the most part, you know, they use them because they can, because there are no limits. So where do we go from here? Puneet Chima does acknowledge that there has been progress on banning no-knock warrants, but there is still a long way to go. And even if a federal ban on no-knock warrants was enacted, Puneet Chima says the focus on aggressive policing can't stop there. So we absolutely agree do think that there needs to be a a prohibition on no-knocks. And cities that have the power to do this should, states that are thinking about this should, and legislators uh, on the Hill in Congress that are thinking about this, um, you know, we we support and and applaud the efforts there. But I also want to note that ending no-knock warrants alone isn't going to end the aggressive policing tactics that we see in Black communities or the the myriad ways that law enforcement officers harm black and brown people and communities as well. Uh, And at times, knock and announce warrants use the same aggressive tactics after the initial moment of entry as the no-knock, including destroying homes, traumatizing people, and brutalizing communities. So there is a a larger project as well. Even if no-knocks are banned at local, state, or federal levels, as they should be, that this is just one part of the the larger project of shifting the ways that we approach safety in communities to approach that creates more investments in in alternative responders and invests in services that reduce violence and uh, using a public health approach for for substance use as well to, to create safety and promote healthy communities. Puneet Chima manages the Justice and Public Safety Project at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. To find out more on their work on this issue of no-knock police warrants, visit NAACPLDF.org. That's NAACPLDF.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Greetings, listeners. This is Sue Goodwin again 
to remind you that we are in our winter pledge drive. And what I want to talk about is what drives us here at the WPFW News Department. And that is the idea that knowledge is power. Every day with our newscasts and every week with this program, Monday Morning QB, our goal is to partner with you in reaching a greater awareness of the events happening in our world, a greater understanding of why they are happening, and a greater ability to use that knowledge to bring about change. It's hard work, and we work hard at it, because we believe the kind of knowledge conveyed every day on WPFW is an essential part of the effort to bring about greater social and economic justice. But the very simple fact is, we cannot do it without you. It is your financial support that keeps this station on the air and allows this program and the entire news department to fulfill our commitment to you. And that's why it's important for you to support us now during this pledge drive. The smallest amount can make a big difference. To pledge by phone, call 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. To donate online, visit wpfwfm.org or you can use Cash App, dollar sign WPFW, and be sure to indicate the program you are supporting and include your email. And thank you for your support. All over the United States, many people of color political prisoners have been held unjustly for decades. 77-year-old Leonard Peltier is the longest-serving indigenous inmate, and last week he suffered from a rough cough and tested positive for COVID-19. Yet the Biden administration ignores his pleas of innocence or even calls for his compassionate release from a Florida jail. At the same time, in a Pennsylvania state prison, 67-year-old Mumia Abu-Jamal has had multiple medical challenges and, like Peltier, maintains his innocence in the death of a law enforcement officer. After boxes and boxes of new exculpatory evidence were found hidden in a district attorney's office, Abu-Jamal has filed another appeal of his conviction. Attorney Noel Hanrahan, founder of the Prison Radio Project, believes both men are subject to jailhouse gerrymandering and that after more than 80 years combined time behind bars for crimes many insist they did not commit, Hanrahan says they should be released immediately, particularly Leonard Peltier. So he does have COVID, and the conditions inside his prison are not conducive to recovery. He's been unable to get a booster shot, and he's been unable to be basically released. Um, some of our elders have multiple conditions that make them highly susceptible to adverse consequences. So he has diabetes. Leonard has hypertension. He has a heart condition. So all of these, they make him immediately eligible for release based on compassionate release. 
but and they make him extremely vulnerable. Prisons are a hotbed for the spread of COVID. And anytime you get it in whatever cycle, whether it's the Delta variant, whether it's the new variant, or whether it's the next version, Leonard is at great risk. His case involves a claim of innocence by himself from the very, very beginning. And he's been in jail for more than 30 years. I think we know from our own experience and our own lived lives that the way in which the state prosecutes people is often based on their fears. It's based on the fact that they believe that the movements that people are in or the people that they subject these prosecutions are potentially leaders, Um, that the movements are a sign of resistance and that the people that they're going after are could be the leaders of those movements. We've seen that in case after case, when they targeted Black Panther Party leaders, when they targeted people who were the epitome of resistance, and that included the um, American Indian movement. So Leonard was caught up in the FBI's targeting of movements that were seeking self-determination and liberation after hundreds of years of colonial and neocolonialism. Now, people have a right to these basic human rights. And when they stood up to assert them, the FBI was just the Pinkertons, was just the foot soldiers for the people who probably wanted their land, wanted to keep their land. I mean, we have to note that the Native American resistance is based on the fact that they were victimized when this country was created and they had been completely disempowered of their land and their power and they were asserting their rights to their indigenous territories. And they should and will continue to assert those rights in the face of neocolonialism based in the United States. So while those are large issues, um, that is the context of these prosecutions. That is why Leonard Peltier is still in prison, in order to make sure that resistance is crushed by these oppressive apparatuses. It never mattered to them whether these people were innocent or guilty of any particular crime. They were attacking the resistance and the people's self-determination. There's a similar case involving Mumia Abu-Jamal. What is his health status at this time? Both of these prisoners, Mumia Abu-Jamal and Leonard Peltier, are elders. So they're older and they are suffering being in prison for these lengths of time. Um, Mumia has been in for 42 years. And he has, um, he had a, we had to fight for Mumia to get treatment to cure to hepatitis C. So he had hepatitis C for many years. It was left untreated, even after the prison was made aware of it, that it should be treated. We fought and we got him the cure. But because there was a delay in getting Mumia the cure to hepatitis C, it exposed him to liver damage. So he has a higher chance of having liver cancer because he was not treated immediately when they diagnosed him. Then also he had congestive heart failure. 
So the conditions that many of our political prisoners are in, in prisons where the food is extremely bad for you and where there is very limited opportunities for exercise. Mumia was in solitary for 30 years. And when he was transferred out of solitary, he often was in units that didn't have access to exercise. So prior to his congestive heart failure, they were on a COVID lockdown and he was locked down in his cell most of the day. He could get out two or three times a day to walk on a tier. So the lack of exercise combined with the horrific diet creates conditions of diabetes and heart failure. Now, Mumia has congestive heart failure. He had triple bypass surgery last March. His ability to regenerate and recover, you can recover from congestive heart failure if you have the proper diet and if you're allowed to get exercise. So that's Mumia's condition right now, that he's still facing conditions of solitary confinement often because of the lockdown, because of the winter in Pennsylvania, and because when there's fog on the yard, they don't let them go out. So it's damaging for our elders to be in these conditions, especially people who deserve to be free. Um, It's damaging for everyone who gets to be this age. Like Leonard Peltier, Mumia Abu-Jamal is a leader and a symbol of the leadership of a movement, which the FBI was attacking. And it appears that their crime, if they are guilty of anything, is having survived a, a violent confrontation with authorities and not been killed like Amir Locke was this last week or like Fred Hampton was uh, or like others who were assassinated. They survived and therefore their punishment never ends, it seems. You know, they're punishing and they're repressing the symbol of liberation. Um, Mumia is like any man. He's treated like any black man in America. He suffers the same indignities and over-incarceration. Yet he's also seen as a symbol. One, because he's continued to resist. He never compromised his ability to speak truth to power. And that is something that they want to silence. If you look around at the political imprisonment that the U.S. has created, the people they charge with seditious conspiracy, the people they charge with um, getting and distributing state secrets, you'll see that it represents so much more than just the criminal act that they're charging. It is people who are exposing the methods and the practice and the daily habits of a power that is very much designed to suppress people's dignity and their self-determination at the, their expense. They'll suppress that for a particular slice of the American population. Let's just say this Mumia said this America is like white supremacy is the mother's milk of America. It is in service of both a capitalist agenda and a racist agenda tandem in tandem. Those two men that we have been talking about, Leonard Peltier and Mumia Abu-Jamal, must just be the tip of the iceberg. There must be others whose names we're not so familiar with who are in similar circumstances. Are there? 
There are many people. Um, it's it's uh, endemic. The society created mass incarceration in order to suppress indigenous self-determination, people's self-determination. And while they were doing that, they also decided to profit off of it. So now you have these masses of bodies. It's the new incarceration of slavery. Literally, in my town, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the police profit off of every arrest by going to the court dates the next day for overtime. And so everyone knows it's the linchpin of this system is police overtime. So they are creating the conditions to suppress people's self-determination and then figuring out how to profit from it at the same time. They are profit and they steal people's votes. So you have the, uh, you're stealing their votes by incarcerating them in rural counties and the rural counties get to count those bodies for their congressional representation, prison gerrymanding it's called. So we in Pennsylvania have prisoners taken, we have two congressional seats in um, Philadelphia taken from us because those prisoners' votes are counted in Schuylkill County, in Greene County, in rural counties that are majority white. So they're literally taking people's bodies and stealing their votes. So every single way they can maximize their um, white supremacist agenda, they do. And it's, you know, you might think, if you're just listening to this, it's like a, a wild, vast conspiracy of, it's not, it's the facts. These are the absolute facts. They arrest people so they can get overtime, and then they figure out how to commodify the bodies. Is there hope for the future for these who I certainly consider to be innocent uh, inmates and for others like them? I definitely believe that the fact that they are here and contributing to our movements, like they never left us. They always reach out to us. Mumia Abu-Jamal, through your radio stations, reaches us, and he has this connection. Leonard Peltier reaches us. If you've seen Leonard's art, it's just stunning. So they are part of us. They are continuing the resistance, and I believe they will be free. And I believe that, you know, there was this amazing um, piece of artwork by Kevin Rasheed Johnson, also a political prisoner, and it says in the uh, drawing, he's not free because we're not free. And I do think that's connected. We will be free when our political prisoner elders are free. Attorney Noelle Hanran, thanks for talking with us about these two vital cases with which you've been involved for so many, many years with the Prison Project. Thank you so much. I hope that you appreciate the fact that you're listening to a station where you hear words that you don't hear anywhere else. And I hope that because you appreciate the fact that resistance, neocolonialism, political prisoners, apartheid are words that you hear often in public affairs programs on WPFW, that you will make a contribution to this radio station. Call now, won't you? 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. 
You can go online to WPFWFM.org or you can cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. WPFW led the drive against the insulting, offensive, dictionary-defined slur of the Washington NFL football team, even when the multimillionaire owner declared that he would never, and you can put it in capital letters, never change the name. And now that name has been changed, and WPFW has been steadfast in that and other struggles. Black Voices for Peace, Black Lives Matter, so many programs and so many causes that we have rallied to and lifted up and brought to your attention that you might not have otherwise heard from. So please, be generous right now. Make a contribution. Support WPFW. Support the station that stands up, that stands up for you, that stands up for the causes that you believe in, that you don't hear elsewhere, anywhere on the dial. Please call now, 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739. Go online to WPFWFM.org or Cash app us at dollar sign WPFW, but contribute now. Our goal is $500. Please be one of those who helps us go over that goal. As we explore our pledge drive theme of love in action, we're reminded that a true collective love is impossible without mutual trust and support. In that sense, public policy, like taxing the rich, is as much about love as it is about economics. Or as a group of millionaires puts it, taxing the rich avoids the wrath of people untrusting of those in power. In an open letter to attendees of the elite Davos Summit, the group said a global restoration of trust could only be achieved through a fair tax system. The alternative, the group says, pitchforks. Reporter Chris Banger Drowns brought us this story in January. In the fall, a group of 136 countries agreed to institute a minimum tax rate of 15% for big multinational corporations in an effort to crack down on tax avoidance and stabilize post pandemic government revenues. While historic, that tax left rich individuals untouched. That gap prompted the group Patriotic Millionaires to call in its letter to Davos attendees for attacks on personal wealth. Such attacks would raise substantial revenues and reduce economic inequality, but would also avoid the pitchforks scenario alluded to in the Davos letter. Morris Pearl, a former managing director at BlackRock and chairman of Patriotic Millionaires, explains what he means by saying, quote, it's taxes or pitchforks. We've been seeing here in our country over the past couple of years, people marching in the streets. People are giving up hope sometimes that our leaders are going to help them. People are, you know, getting addicted to opioids and dying. And a lot of that is because of this gross inequality. They're seeing some of us getting richer and richer and richer every single day. And others of us who work for a living, 
and get money deducted from paychecks every week are just falling farther and farther behind. And I think people are just starting to give up. And that's what I mean in that this inequality that's growing so much and getting worse is sort of leading to instability in our nation. The few getting richer and richer and richer while the masses are just not getting ahead, not able to save money and getting farther and farther behind. In that vein, your, your annual wealth tax fact sheet found that U.S. billionaires increased their total wealth by, I think, $2 trillion during the pandemic, which is massive in raw terms, but also in percentage terms. I think it's, what, a 39% increase in, in U.S. billionaire wealth. And this is reflected in other countries as you know, large increases in Canada, United Kingdom. What explains this rapid expansion of the ultra wealthy's wealth during a pandemic when most people's incomes either stagnated or, or decreased and, and GDP as a whole uh, fell? Well, yeah, we had a huge pandemic. You know, at some point, a huge percentage of our people were unemployed, people that work in restaurants and theaters and all kinds of other places were unable to work at all. But people like me, investors who don't work for a living, I'm here in my apartment in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I sit and look at my computer and see the numbers going up every day because more people are buying stuff from Amazon, because more people are buying iPhones and subscribing to iTunes and downloading apps. And investing in companies like that has made me richer than I was before the pandemic. I don't have any earned income and I don't work and I live quite well and I am more wealthy now than I was before the pandemic started. And that's just the way it is. The rich are getting richer. People who already have wealth and able to invest it because the stock market's been doing fine over the last several years. And people who don't have wealth who have to get money from their labor, well, they're losing out and they're falling farther behind. And as I said before, some of them are just giving up hope that anyone is going to do anything to improve their lives. Your organization, Patriotic Millionaires, has proposed a, a graduated global wealth tax, and it's projected to raise $2.5 trillion annually. What are some ways that those resources could be spent? And, and maybe more importantly, how would global decisions be made about spending this revenue? Well, it, or just to be clear, that was an example of in the report of what, how much money could be raised hypothetically if we had that kind of tax in all countries. We're not really proposing that, that ex those exact numbers, the right numbers for every country in the world necessarily. You know, we've looked at a lot of different things. We've looked at Senator Warren's proposals here in the United States that started much higher numbers. I think different countries have slightly different stories and five, someone who has, you know, a $5 million home here in Manhattan is a very different situation than someone who has a $5 million estate in Nairobi. But um, putting that aside, each country, you know, does things independently. We don't have any kind of world government or something. And I don't think too many people would want such a thing, even if it was proposed, but I'm hoping I'm hoping that some of this money can be used to help the people who've been unemployed because of the pandemic to sort of put back 
effectively some parts of the economy that have essentially failed since then. And I'm hoping that some countries around the world can get some additional money to use to help another generation of people enter the middle class. You know, we've seen just in the papers this week, you know, saying in India, it's almost like a lost generation of people who've lost access to education that they were expecting before the pandemic because they're not able to run their school system in India. And that's bad for them, but it's going to be bad for the whole economy, you know, 15 years from now when those people, instead of being middle-class workers who are buying stuff and spending money and, you know, working in offices and buying iPhones and going out for beer on the weekend, if they end up being impoverished people, that doesn't do anybody any good. That doesn't do the business people any good either. And so I'm hoping that the governments around the world can kind of increase their tax revenues and do something about this so we don't end up with a lost generation of people. So I guess the proposal then is that individual governments raise taxes kind of in line with this range of percentages, two to 5%, but not actually have a a sort of global mandate uh, in the sense that the global multinational corporation taxes is being set. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I don't think the same numbers are necessarily right for every country and you know, we haven't really gotten into the details. The report was created with some examples of what can be done. But the main point is inequality has gotten so much worse. A few people are capturing such a large part of all of the wealth in the world that it's just unsustainable. We can't operate the world the way it is if a few people have all of the wealth, it's just not going to work. And those people who are greedy, those people who want to continue the way we're going, frankly, I think they're killing the geese that lays the golden eggs by being short-sighted and just looking at, you know, making more money this month or this year, rather than what situation they're going to be in, you know, a few years from now and what situation their children and grandchildren will be in. Morris Pearl chairman of Patriotic Millionaires, and co-author with Erica Payne of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Spangert-Drowns. Call 202-588-9739 now to support WPFW's theme of Love in Action. Chris, how does our Pledge Drive theme connect to the notions of trust and fairness you just discussed with Morris Pearl? Thanks, Askia. Morris and I were just discussing the issues of trust that come with social and economic inequality and the harms caused by inequality. And in doing so, I'm reminded of Bell Hooks' vision of love as a verb rather than love as a noun, that true and robust love is about doing rather than feeling. It's about nurturing and supporting one another. It's about empowering one another. And I think on a social level, good public policy 
like taxing the rich, for example, is a kind of love in action, love as a verb, rather than the empty love as a noun that's typically promised by political leaders. And I think WPFW is crucial to the formation of a loving politics through both the, the broadcast of our public affairs programs that often promote you know, public policy that is truly loving, but also through the nurturing of its own station community, which includes you, the listener. And in this season of Love in Action, we are asking you to act in support of this station and the community that it nurtures. Please call 202-588-9739. If you're out of area, 1-800-222-9739 and pledge your support to this station of Love in Action. You can also visit us online at wpfwfm.org or donate on Cash App at $WPFW. What is Black love? Like, for real, what is Black love? Is it rooted in your family or your community? Is it romantic or is it just something impossible to explain? What does Black love mean to you? Well, uh, while you think on that, here are some responses that I received last week. I think I'm someone who has found love repeatedly um, and not always romantically, but I'm really grateful for the ways that honestly love has found me. Um, And I think that black love is getting to be your whole self, you know, um, and, I, and I, I have few people that I get to be my whole self with, um, that, that true, true black love, honestly, was with people who were pouring into me when like my cup wasn't just not full, it was evaporating when I didn't see like that value in my body, that value in my beauty, that value in my intelligence, that value in just my personhood. Um, I see black love or I've, I've found black love. I've experienced black love as people who really, really receive all of me, the good, the bad, the ugly. And then they, they tell me that it's beautiful. They tell me that it's worthy. They tell me that I'm lovable. Um, and receiving it is like a shock each time. Black love to me means change. And I feel that it's also synonymous to me with queer love because the ways that love has manifested in my life and shown up in my relationships with people have been outside of what we what we think of as love, be it in romantic relationships or in familiar relationships. Those haven't been loving relationships in my in my history. It's been it's been relationships with my friends that fill me up and that I feel from that place able to able to give of myself in ways that I wasn't that I really wasn't even sure I could I mean that I feel like we're forced to constantly constantly work out for ourselves what love looks like for us how does love really work black love is complicated as fuck and black love in the sense of like we're talking about black love in America because you're trying to love your partner in a world that doesn't love them I want to say it's beautiful, but I know for me and my friends and people that I know, most of us don't have the best examples of black, of love. Like a lot of black love we see is rooted in so much sacrifice and so much, you know, you know, pain. It's the truth. Like, I'm not saying all black love is like that, but 
a lot of us that's what we've seen of it because you're trying to love your partner again and you're also you're also trying to deal with the fact that this world does not love your partner the way you see them i would say black love is the ability to love one another the ability to love yourself love romantic partners in the midst of the world not loving you Black love is a concept that can't be categorized. Black love is a plethora of actions, and those actions display empowerment, a proper admiration, and a proper appreciation for yourself, your loved ones, and other black souls in a world where it thrives off of demoralizing and marginalizing black souls. My perception of black love has evolved over time. When I was younger, I used to strictly see it through a point of view of romance. But as I got older, I realized black love can be applicable in many different areas because it displays empowerment. So it just means like paying attention, really seeing yourself to me, seeing yourself, see yourself, see yourself, see yourself. You know what I mean? Black love in just all capacities is just it's powerful. It moves mountains. It shakes the world. It literally breeds change everywhere. You can't you can't trade it for the world. It literally moves the world. It keeps the world going. Not to even, like, <laughs> sound cheesy, but Black love is inspiring. I mean, it, it, for me, it keeps me going into the, into the future and into the unknown, you know? Even when my present circumstances don't reflect the life that I want to live and don't reflect my values, it's love that keeps me going. Overall, like, I always think that whenever I think about love, I think about this poem by Mari Evans, um, it's celebration. And uh, it, I'll never forget these lines. It, it's, I think it's the last stanza of the poem. And she basically says, um, I'll be bringing you someone whole and you will be bringing me someone whole and we be twice as uh, strong and we be twice as true and we will have twice as much love and everything. And together it will be a celebration. And so I think black love is a celebration. Though many are kicking off this St. Valentine's Day with gifts and flowers or fancy dinner plans, some are continuing yesterday's celebration of Black Love Day. Though Black Love Day is now a nationwide holiday, it started out in D.C.'s Shaw neighborhood as a response to traumatic violence. Reporter Amara Evering has more. This Black History Month, it may be tempting to only focus on the violent realities of our history, like enslavement, systematic racism, and continued brutality. But we can't forget the powerful force that has reminded us again and again and again that we are so much more than narratives of violence and oppression. That force is love. I spoke to the founder of Black Love Day, DC's own Io Handy Kendi, about why she chose to start this now nationwide holiday. I didn't sit and think it over and come up with it as an intellectual, rational kind of process. I was actually given a spiritual message as I left the movie, Spike Lee's movie portrayal of Malcolm X. And the graphic scene in which Malcolm is shot down, I remember just my heart feeling so heavy when I left the theater. I left, got on the subway, and I remember saying, as this scene just could not get out of my head, 
wow, you know, the brothers, they show them shooting Malcolm and oh man. And, and what can I do to stop violence and increase peace? When I asked that question, I felt I could hear the voice of the creator saying, we need more Black love. Did you think that at the time and place, you know, it was D.C., early 90s, did you think that this holiday was needed and where yes. D.C. was at at the time? Can you talk yes. about that? Yes, I did. D.C. in 1993 was going through drive-by shootings, and we were just beginning to come out of this whole big crack cocaine challenges. D.C. was a, a reflection of how the whole country was also going through a whole lot that had to do with drug issues and the police coming in and rounding us up. And a lot of the concerns in the community had to do with young people needing work, but found that they could make a lot of money in the streets. We were losing young people. They began to fight over the turf of these streets of being able to make that kind of money and young people were being killed. I lived in a community very close to downtown DC and my own sons were involved and I was trying to pull them out of the street. I was a stay-at-home mom at that time. I was co-parenting my children. Their father was all involved. There was many of us who was also still struggling with our own depressions. There was so much pain. Then in 1994, my son was also killed, hit in the head and left in the streets. And so I, yes, I went in a deep dive after Rashi's murder. I was angry. I wanted to get out. I wanted to find who had taken his life. I was trying to help the young people in the neighborhood to not go after and retaliate against people that they thought had killed them. It was a, it was a very, very challenging time. After you started Black Love Day and you went through this traumatic loss, I'm sure that there might have been a part of you that said, I don't want to continue to do this, you know, do Black Love Day. Yes. Why did you keep going after 1994? Um, that's an excellent question. A sister in the Washington Post heard my story that my son was killed. Her name is Deneen Brown. And she asked me almost the same question. What are you going to do now? And I said, we still need to increase the peace and stop the violence. I said, I'm going to have a peace walk in the Shaw area, in my son's name. She said, you you holding up a whole community here, but you're in mourning and in grief. And I said, I think that that's what I've been taught. And so here I was again, holding up the world, which was actually part of the depression, honestly, Amar. And so making that peace walk that first year in the Shaw area, a lot of people came out, a lot of people had lost their children. And Deneen had me on the front page of the Washington Post Metro session. And she has a picture of me holding this young black man. And he's just crying. And, you know, we got the handout that spoke about Rashid. And he's just hugging me. And a year later, he was killed. He was killed. What propelled you to keep going is that you've got to believe that there's something bigger than yourself. I kept doing the work with activism, 
But at the same time, I did more work around my own self. And we just continue to have Black love events year after year after year. And people start saying this Black love day is so powerful that it is a day of transformation. And for myself, it became the transformative piece I could hold on to every February the 13th that I could really know that on that day I could forgive and I could reconcile and I could really spend one 24-hour period in taking care of me. You said you were holding up your community in a lot of ways. I think a lot of Black women find themselves in that position. I want to know for you, as a Black woman, how do we show love for ourselves when we're often in these situations that are really, you know, draining? How do we show love to ourselves on Black Love Day? Yes, yes. Well, Black Love Day gives us a 24-hour demonstration of showing love, showing love in five very special Black love acts. And it's showing love for the creator, love for ourselves, love for our Black community, our Black family and for the Black diaspora, a strong Black women who end up oftentimes being the ones that on these days of celebration and recognition, we're the ones that end up fixing all the food and doing all the decorations. The perfect holiday tends to come from our efforts of trying to just do it all, make it all just so special we end up having to push away the all the forces that come at us and have come at us historically and behind a lot of the families being able to stay together it's because of that strong black woman's sacrifices of herself and so today in my effort to maintain my sense of self, I need to celebrate me. And so my choices have been much more conscientious and I've learned to allow myself to sit still. I start with me first. I know this is kind of random, but do you have any views about the commercialization of Valentine's Day? Oh my um, goodness. Oh, you do? <laughs> oh, you know I do. In Black Love Day, I was able to do the research about Valentine's Day. You know, Valentine's Day didn't start off so commercial. It started off as this a European pagan concept way, way, way back in about third century AD or so. The things that started off in Valentine's Day weren't so loving and they all had to do with some trauma and abuse. So all of those concepts have been recreated in the European tradition. And then I believe that when we started co-opting the Valentine, and that became the symbol of this Valentine's Day, the money aspect of Valentine's Day began to show up. The selling of the cards, then it became candy, then it became flowers, then it became diamond rings, and then it became, oh, the perfect gift for Valentine's Day. If that's the forerunner of our thoughts, then the retail industry is taking that all to the bank. I'm affirming that Black Love Day will never, ever get to that point. If we're spending all of our money and feeling empty 
and feeling the sense of violence. A lot of violence happens in Valentine's Day because people aren't getting that sense of fulfillment. We've been hearing about it, get the love by getting the thing (laughs) or give the thing. And then we're empty because, you know, this is really not the soul of who we are as a people. This is not our culture. And so we can stop spending all this money celebrating things that don't relate to us and throwing it out of our community and then expecting to feel good. Nah, nah. Got to turn that back around. Thank you so much. I didn't expect to learn something for myself from this conversation, but I really did. You know, I don't know if you want to put it on the recording. Um, I'd love to know what you learn. I guess taking care of yourself. And it kind of got me thinking about how we don't forgive people and how we're angry at other people. Maybe that's a, a self thing first. Mm-hmm. You it, know? Is. it is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. My son for almost 12 years, Amar, was in, knotted up in pain. You know, he wasn't around when his brother got killed, mm-hmm. but he felt so guilty and he was just in total knot of pain. And then one day, it's like, he just like, he came in, he looked like a whole different person. I said, what happened? And he said, I, I, I actually forgive who, who killed my brother. Mm. And I said, wow, yeah, yeah. Forgiveness is one of the most powerful ways of releasing the violence that we perpetrate on ourselves. That was DC's beloved, Ayo Handy Kendi founder of the African-American Holiday Association, breathologist, and founder of Black Love Day. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. That was Amara Evering. Amara, what led you to do this segment on Black Love Day? Hi, Skia. I think the truth is, is that I love my community. I'm from DC, I'm black, and most of all, I look up to our living legends, black women who have literally changed history. And in talking to Ayo Handy Kendi, your name came up as one of the first journalists who covered Black Love Day. She said she owed a debt to you because you were one of the first people to put Black Love Day on the map. And now we have a national holiday celebrating Black love, which is partly the work of journalists. So I'm asking you to keep this legacy going by calling 1-800-222-9739 and pledging with us. Again, journalists at our station are some of the first people to publicize what's going on in our community. So please consider keeping us going by simply visiting WPFW.org or calling 1-800-222-9739. I'm going to say that one more time. 1-800-222-9739. Again, we could not survive without your support. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. Don't forget, support WPFW now, 202-588-9739, WPFWFM.org, or cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Thank you for listening. 
and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and to WBAI New York.